0: Recently I uh, received a letter of acceptance into one of the most prestigious universities in the world and not to dwell on that for too long but being where I'm from and who I am this meant quite a lot to me and over the next few days I was overwhelmed by messages of support telling me how I deserved this, how they knew I could do it, how no one could stop me and those are fairly typical congratulations but what made me think about them was this referral to me to this idea of Hassan, that's me by the way, that they had all sort of crafted. I mean, no one can really say those things without having an idea of who I am, and clearly they all do have an idea of who I am. And I mean, it may not seem like an incredibly large problem on the surface level, but the following question of, is the same person they're talking about the same person I think I am, is an incredibly important and very personal question that we sort of all have to deal with at one point now many do not go on these sort of quests of introspection and identity crafting once they receive a university offer but then again this is probably this kind of behavior and sort of the reason why i got past the interview stages and accepted into the university in the first place so there's no point stopping this philosophical behavior now and I guess today we'll kind of be exploring that, something we can all sort of relate to, identity. You know, what does it mean to be you or I or a person? Is it public? Is it private? Also, what about identity can help us understand forms of oppression or discrimination or neglect in ways that we maybe haven't thought about before? These are conversations I think we should be happening, that should be happening at least, particularly nowadays. You know, everyone's been reading a lot more French existentialism nowadays, it seems. Maybe I am, because 2020 and 2021, the beginning of it at least, have shown us that these questions are fundamentally very important. And when you have a lot of time spent alone in your room reading Sartre, these questions don't go away very easily. So the existential question, who am I, is something we're going to be exploring today. But before we get into that, welcome again to another episode of The Propaganda Machine. Today we're going a bit more philosophical, but as usual, I'll try and involve politics in it. And in fact, I think we might have to end up doing that anyway, particularly towards the end. But let's start with the philosophy, because everybody knows philosophy is where everything starts, and you can't get away from it, no matter how hard you try to. But I want to start off with Descartes. Somebody who is known for his cogito argument. That's his... Arguably, his most philosophically significant breakthrough, or the one that I am most aware of, and since I'm aware of no other philosophically amazing argument that he made, I'm aware of other arguments he's made, but they're not so good. Um, The Cogito is probably the one that he's most well known for. And in fact, his Cogito argument, I think, therefore I am, well, that's the conclusion of it at least, the individual focus of the self and this sort of egotistical in the sense of, you know, looking at one individually is largely what, you know, separates Western philosophy, particularly the Enlightenment period to contemporary philosophy, from the Eastern philosophy of Buddhism, Hinduism and Confucianism, which is a very confusing name. Uh, that's a pun there, by the way. <laughs> Where the individual is more connected to the entity surrounding them, or less of an individual, but rather a part in this sort of universal, larger entity and sphere of body. You see, that distinction between the West and the East largely does, you know, Stem from Descartes' Cogito argument. So, for those of you who are not aware of Descartes' Descartes' Cogito argument, Um, it's a very popular and sort of an introductory way into scepticism or just thinking philosophically. But the story goes like this, well, in meditations at least, Descartes writes that, you know, he had to doubt everything, you know? He wanted to know what he could actually know, so he had to doubt everything. Anything he could doubt, he threw out. Imagine he he had like a basket of all his thoughts, all of his assumptions, everything he ever believed, and he just threw everything out. Because he could doubt that those things were all tricks of his senses. Because his senses had doubted, had um, tricked him before, sorry. He could also doubt that, you know, all those things weren't actually real. That he was just in a state of slumber. He was dreaming. Because he's been in dreams before where everything seems really real. And things like 2 plus 2 equaling 4 are just as true in somebody's dream as they are when they are fully conscious. And he could also be being tricked maybe not by a devil, because, you know, he was obviously in a time where Christianity was far more prominent in philosophy than it is now. You know, he could be tricked by a devil, but we could be being tricked in a simulation or a brain in a vat, which are all arguments that sort of follow one or sort of modernize Descartes' initial argument. But he realized that for any of those things to be happening, for him to be doubting in the first place, for him to be being tricked, for him to be being deceived by his senses, there has to be something there right? Because you can't trick something if it's not there, right? And you can't doubt if there's nothing doubting. So, the fact that he was doubting led him to a very apparent and almost necessary, unrefutable conclusion that because he's thinking, therefore he is. Or at least when someone is thinking, or if there is a being that is thinking, they are there, right? But, of course, this kind of left him a problem, because when all you are is your thoughts, I think, therefore I am, and that's the only thing you can really know, a lot of things are kind of thrown out the window. Other people, his own body, the rest of the physical world was all still thrown up in the air. And, you know, except for some reason God, but you can take that up with Descartes, he kind of liked God. But the following scepticism that ensues from this is fundamental to a lot of philosophical problems. How can I know somebody else has a mind, for example? How can I know somebody else is real? How can I know that they're not just a philosophical zombie where they look, breathe, eat, smell, and do all the things human beings do, but they don't have a conscious thought? They don't feel anything, right? How can I know the table in front of me is actually a black table? It could be being deceiving me. You know, this table could actually be the devil. I don't know. Maybe that would be cool. That would be really cool. Actually, I really want my table to become the devil. Now I'm slightly disappointed that it's not. That would maybe explain why it was wobbling. Maybe the devil was a bit pissed off at me for you know doing good things. I guess. But a lot of following skepticism follows from this. The thing is, for me though, this skepticism never made any sense. I I always wanted to scream at Descartes well, not scream at him, but I just got really annoyed at his arguments and all the sceptics that followed it. You know, these philosophical friends I would have that would say, oh, we can't know anything. I can't know if you exist. I can't know if people around me exist. But as a black kid, it didn't really make any sense that other people didn't exist. Other people had to exist. And how do you get things like slavery, Jim Crow, police brutality, or colonialism? How would I feel racial standards and stereotypes impacting my life? The direct comments of hatred, or the simple prevention of me living my life to the fullest extent that I wish to because of the colour of my skin? How could I feel all these things if simply all there was was me? It contradicts the social and political life that I engage in, and many other people felt like this. You see, I think therefore I am isn't the only thing that I know. I know I am, but I also know that others know me. I mean, how could I be sceptical of others under the state of discrimination or prejudice? I mean, who I am wasn't just my thinking self, it wasn't just the thoughts going in my brain or my detached self, but it was the social picture that many have of me. You see, my identity then isn't just this personal thought that I'm having, but it's this battle between the personal And also the social construction and connotations of my race, my class, my ethnicity, and even something as simple as the hobbies that I enjoy. So not only do I think and therefore I am, but others think of me in a way, and that is who I become. These are incredibly important things to sort of understand. Because being sceptical never really made sense to me. And those are the reasons why. As a black kid, I couldn't be sceptical. I couldn't dismiss the reality of the prejudice and discrimination in front of me. My other gay friends also can't do that. They can't get away from the shame that they feel because of the standards society puts onto them. How can it just be them? Clearly, there is far more to identity, to who I am, than simply my cogito, right? While the cogito is a decent foundation to begin on, it clearly doesn't encompass enough of what it means to be the person. But there's another theory of memory, or theory of identity. Sorry, I'm giving it away. That is also quite prevalent. John Locke's memory theory. You see, John Locke argued that beyond just this introspection, uh, introspection. I don't know why I slurred my words there. Of who I am, or you know that someone is just you know the thoughts that they have. Rather, it is the continuous stream of memories that link all my past experiences until this current moment that makes me who I am. He's famously saying that, you know, if a prince's thoughts and memories were to be transferred, so their entire mind was to be transferred to the body of a cobbler, they would still be a prince, but just simply in a different body. And this has been an incredibly sort of famous and prominent theory of identity. You know, it makes sense because then you sort of get into issues of, well, you know, next week, am I going to be the same person that I am now? What links us? What links the person next week and links me? Well, our memories do. The memories I have of myself, of course, link me. The memories I have of my 13-year-old self link me to my 13-year-old self, even though I'm currently 18. But see, I kind of have a problem with this as well because... Memories are just references to different times, in a sense, you can understand them as that, but even their truest form, they are just that, references to different times. But a lot of times they are very easily manipulated and far more subjective than some may care to admit. I mean, the phenomena of nostalgia alone is a clear example of this. How do I know for sure that the 13-year-old who was me i guess that i remember is the 13 year old that remembered themselves i mean when i was 13 years old in 17 days i look back and i have an idea of what i was like but when i was 13 years old in 18 days and i look back to that 17th day of me being 13 years old did i have the same idea i clearly kind of am a different person right and i mean the person who believes in John Locke's sort of memory theory would say yeah you are a different person but then what links me to the rest of my identity because I'm still the son of my mother I'm still the brother to all my sisters I'm still the cousin to all my other cousins I'm still a student at the same school I went to my records all link me up together clearly there's this link but it can't just be my memory right because there's loads of things I've forgotten about myself loads of things that aren't continuously in my brain currently right now. Surely, just because I don't have memories of certain things, does that really make me a different person? And also, again, it seems far too personal. It seems far too individually driven. Surely, who I am, as I stated earlier, is largely influenced by not just who I believe I am, but of the social constructions of people like me. The social ideas of what it is to be me—they clearly influence who I am. They largely influence the way in which I live my life, because I'm barred or led into different ways of acting and being simply because of those things. I mean, one of the large reasons why I wanted to take philosophy in the first place, and why I'm so you know enthusiastic to do this, is because when I look at the list of philosophers in my spec sheet or in the reading material that I'm going to have to take at university, I see very little people like me. But then again, uh, am I not a philosopher like these other white philosophers? Surely we're both philosophers, but being a black philosopher seems to be something a bit different. Purely by the colour of my skin, my identity is something far different even though I'm also a philosopher. Clearly memories of a philosophy lesson between a white kid and a black kid, change them, change who they are. I'm not the same as those other kids because the experiences I've lived through are not only different, but they could be the exact same. I can sit in the exact same lecture hall, in the exact same seat as a white undergraduate who did the same thing before me, and I could live the same life as they are, but simply because of these external qualities, I'm somebody completely different. Maybe not personally, but publicly I definitely am. Publicly, I am somebody who is maybe aggressive, or angry, or braggadocious, and far too loud. Or maybe I am uh, somebody who doesn't belong in this certain place, doesn't belong in a certain country. These notions, these views of me, influence my identity. Because I can't separate the personal from the political or from the social. Because the the validation of who I am was debated for centuries and still is. The Black Lives Matter movement, for me particularly, wasn't just about stopping black lives from being killed. It wasn't just about stopping black lives from being harmed by the police. Because we know that loads of people are harmed by the police. The state doesn't just affect black people but rather it was about understanding that black lives need to be validated in the same way that white lives are. To the point where this difference between black and white no longer exists, but we still live in that world where my identity, I could enjoy the same hobbies as you, I could be from the same road as you, I could be from the exact same school, country, heck, We could have adopted parents who are the exact same and grow into the same house, but because of the colour of my skin, or maybe because of my sexuality, or maybe because of my gender, I have to go through an entirely different form of living than you do. I have to set myself different standards that are incredibly different to you. I told you earlier that I got into a prestigious university. That prestigious university... Doesn't take many people who look like me, and in fact, I was pushed to go there because my mother had been telling me from when I was a kid that people who look like me cannot be content with being average or cannot be content with simply living life as it is. I have to be this larger thing, I have to work 10 times harder than everyone else. It's a common trope within black families and black communities or colored communities or poor communities, that you have to work far harder than everybody else just to be recognized, to simply be validated. Surely my identity then is something much larger than who I am. Because when I go to question who I am, simply because of the race of my skin, right, simply because of that fact that I'm black, I not only to justify my existence to myself, but I have to justify my existence to the world. I have to show you why I am not only just black, I'm not just a black working-class kid, but I am far more than that. White men don't have to do that a lot of times. A lot of white rich people don't. And not even just white rich people, a lot of rich people don't. Because everywhere I go, I have always been the kid from the working class background who is black, who is very smart for where he's come from. I am the statistic defier. I am the person who's overcome all the odds. I'm not simply just the kid who got into philosophy. No, I'm all those other things as well. Things that I don't really want to be. I hate being the kid who defies expectations. Because fuck those expectations. They're shitty expectations. Because you're telling me that without those expectations, I'm simply inadequate. That without being exceptional, I'm not valid. It's something I've had to deal with my entire life. These expectations. And then I started to think about these things a bit more. The expectations I've endured, the sort of presupposed notions that people have put onto me of what I should be, have crafted who I am and when I was really down when I was struggling with life it was because I was trying to be that expectation-led person that idea that everyone had of me and I realized that a form of oppression that a form of discrimination that we don't really talk about is expectation. Because when we think of black people, and particularly I saw this a lot in the Black Lives Matter movement, when people would shout and scream about how there's so much black excellence, how there are so many black people who are far and beyond. And recently with the India protest, I've seen it a lot, where a lot of people are talking about Indians be, and the Sikhs and the Punjabi community being so helpful being so useful at times of feeding people here in the UK and being amazing parts of our community. And I don't deny that. But then a part of me seems to wonder why that's even necessary to bring up. Why do they have to validate themselves with that sort of criteria of being worthwhile? Of being worth something to society? Because what if they were just homeless bums who were being tortured by the police? surely it's still immoral right but when we have these conversations about discrimination those things always seem to come in oh but black kids are so smart and you let them go to cambridge when you give them things they'll excel and succeed what about the people who are just fucking normal just normal average joes what about those black people who's fighting for them and the question of who they are are they are they not important people are they not valid you see you can't simply be mediocre when you're being oppressed you have to shine for some reason you have to overcome this you know notion of being typical and have to be extra ordinary for some reason i mean and the problem of who i am then The question is more than just my memories is more than just the fact that i can think but it's this mosaic of personal experience personal identity but also a public and political prescription ideas that other people link onto me because human beings are necessarily social animals identity isn't Either or, it's not just public, it's not just private. Yes, there's a public identity and there's a private identity, but they both need each other. Kind of like Hegel's master slave argument. You know, the master is higher than the slave and, you know, dominates over the slave, but without the slave, they are no longer the master. Without the public perception of everybody in me, I'm not the private perception or I don't have a private perception, because then it's no longer private, it's something entirely different. But because they intermesh together, and because they influence each other, and they sort of fight against each other at times, you get this mosaic of who I am, the expectations, the need to conform to an ideal, with the introspection and existential question of what I want to pursue, what potential I want to fulfill. and that's largely a very good way of looking at discrimination because i was thinking about trans people because here in the uk we have a massive problem with people being transgender we are nicknamed turf island in our leftist communities and i can see it you see the, the thing about being transgender for me is it's much larger than just being born in a different body or liking your mum's dresses when you were a child or being a bit of a tomboy and being a bit rougher when you were a kid than other girls it's an existential question of who they are and the fact that we deny them that the fact that we deny non-binary people non-conforming people to simply be able to answer that question is very similar to any other form of discrimination and in fact Preventing someone from being able to answer that existential question is largely the most oppressive form of discrimination. Because if someone can't decide who they are, if they are prescribed what they are by external forces, then they can never have true agency. And without that true agency, it's no wonder that unfortunately, people end up committing suicide. They no longer can decide who they are They are something to be connoted to, to be recognized as, instead of being able to sculpt their own image, and instead of being able to be a multifaceted, various sort of type of person who has these various layers, sorry, who is different, who is nuanced, they are a set of stereotypes. And sure, some people conform to those stereotypes, but somebody is not simply just a stereotype. Nobody is, in fact. There are far more factors and elements of personhood than any stereotype can ever delve into or even begin to scratch the surface of. And preventing them from simply being able to live out and sufficiently answer the question of what gender they conform to best, which one they feel happiest in, which one they feel the, just the best in, is something that is absolutely evil. How can you deny them from asking the fundamental question of who they are? And that is the same for the black experience that I have lived. The fact that I'm judged differently when I read books than some of my peers, or the fact that I talk about Hegel and Descartes makes me different from other black kids. I've suffered the same that they've suffered, but at the same time, my excellence has almost been used against me as a weapon. It's a tr- troubling thing when even when I succeed I can't escape the brutal reality of my skin the fact that I am seen as this kid who defied the statistics instead of just simply instead of just simply an, a normal kid who just likes philosophy I'm never going to be seen as a philosopher I'm going to be seen as the black philosopher uh because there are not a lot of black philosophers in fact you could probably say that there aren't any right now because I've not seen any in academia. In fact, I looked through every single department in my college that I'm going to and I didn't see a black face. And I looked at every photo in the gallery of the students that I'd be sharing university living spaces with and I didn't see a black face. And I've seen the diversity adverts they put out in commercials and I sort of was like, well, there's some of us there, I guess, but I'm going to be seen as an abnormality. I'm going to be seen as something that is different simply because of my skin color. That's just annoying on the plainest level and on the highest level is disappointing and truly sort of saddening and not a lot of people really understand those things of the troubling nature of these issues that people of color and people of minority sort of recognize and that's why i get annoyed when people talk about identity politics in such a demeaning way because yes identity politics has sort of been perverted and made into this mess of things that you know hierarchically sort of categorizing people rather than understanding the nuanced nature of identity politics identity politics was actually put forward by black feminists to show people that there is more than just being black or just being a woman or just being you know a communist or someone from the working class or the proletariat but rather the amalgamation of all these different things create these people a building can have rooms that look different but it's still one building we don't judge a building by one room or the other. We understand that they conjoin together to create this structure. Why can't we do the same with people? Of course, it was gentrified and taken over by annoying liberals who think that just because someone is a black woman that they can't be an evil um, imperialist. Definitely not talking about Kamala Harris. And now I'm talking about Kamala Harris, just in case you didn't recognize. She's a bit of an asshole, but she's a black woman, you know. Come on. I'm sorry, half black, half Indian woman. She's perfect. (laughs) But no. The point of identity politics, as I said, was to recognise this. To recognise that, yeah, I'm a black kid, working class kid, but I also have privileges. I'm far more nuanced than these labels you put onto me. And something I've always thought identity politics, the point of identity politics was to deconstruct these things. To show that our identities are multifaceted. That people have different ideas and notions of themselves and their public personas and their private personas meshed together to make something far more than just whatever we think they are. Whatever the world puts onto them. That they are people. And that if we utilize identity politics correctly, we can understand that. We can recognize that. That there is a mesh between anti-racism and anti-sexism and feminism and, you know... Uh, lgbtq plus and the pushing of those things and class solidarity but beyond all of that a fundamental part of my philosophy and something i've said this before a fundamental part of my moral philosophy is the common humanity between all of us not in the weird carl young way but in the fact that we're all human beings who engage in life in various different ways and we should recognize that that beyond these labels and prescriptions we put onto each other we are all human beings And we should all be given the opportunity to answer that existential question that bugs all of us. And we should not stop people from fulfilling it, even if it goes against norms or against what we think people should conform to. The capitalist expectation of what an adult should be like leads many people to feel unsatisfied when they are perfectly normal people. Misogynist tropes have prevented women from trying to reach... Their potential or going beyond simply being a mother. Transphobic and homophobic norms have led to people committing suicide and being estranged from their families. And racism affects all of us because not only do black kids have to deal with that looming cloud of their blackness every time they wake up, but white kids are alienated from the struggles of their black peers. They are alienated from the fact that they can't share just being normal friends with other people without the racial tensions between them because of all this baggage that comes with being a different color. It's a struggle for all of us. It impedes all of humanity for us to not be able to answer the simple questions of what I want to be or who I am. And that's simply the thing that I want to remind you guys about today. I also want to remind you guys to keep on being active in your awareness of what's going on in India right now I think that's an important thing but also again you know who you are is a very important question and I think anyone who's struggling with that should just hear this out and understand that the fight against discrimination fundamentally is to allow people to let them answer that question without being prescribed stereotypes or notions of what they should be because that is what freedom is being able to answer this question of who you consciously are I hope you've enjoyed today's episode i've still stick to the once a week schedule sunday today i know i apologize i'm a terrible human being but school shit happened and i took a break because i got into a great university i'm pretty sure you'll be fine with that but anyway i hope you guys enjoy this episode and i'll see you guys next time peace